As we come to the scripture now, let me, let me pray. Father in heaven, um, we're supposed to come to the scripture humbly, God. My guess is that very many times we come rather matter-of-factly. Uh, here we go again. We've done this before. We're going to do it again. Nothing necessarily special. I pray that sometime between my amen and when I begin to read, that you would take all matter-of-factness out of us and put us in the realm of awe and wonder that the creator of all that is wrote to us and speaks to us even now. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. I want to read first 18 verses. 2 Kings chapter 2, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take uh, away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you, your, you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master from, uh, from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, and they both as they, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two men could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. And he took up the cloak from Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed 
to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But then they urged him till he was ashamed. He said, Send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I, did I not say to you, do not go? All right. Now, this is one of those passages that in the very first sentence tells us what it's going to tell us. It tells us right off the bat, this was the time that the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. And so that's our expectation. That's the event that is to come. We expect there's going to be this wind, this whirlwind, and Elijah is going to be taken. Now that expression taken is a rather technical one really in the Old Testament because it's used of another one who was taken, this man named Enoch. And Enoch was also taken. In fact, if you have opportunity to read through Genesis chapter 5, most of us do because we start every January 1 reading the Bible through in a year. So we get to Genesis 5. Rarely get to Genesis 8, uh, but we get to Genesis 5 generally. And, and so, so we know this passage. And it's one that starts out rather boringly. You know, it starts out, these are the generations of Adam. And, and it has this little sing-songy kind of formula. There was this, this person, he was born, and he had a son, and he lived X number of years, and he died. And then this other one was, was lived, and, and he had a son, and, and he lived X number of years, and he died. And another one, the same pattern, the same pattern. And then we get to this one named Enoch, and it, and it says he was taken. You're expecting it to say, and he lived X number of years, and he died. He, said, he lived X number of years, and he was taken. In fact, the way the author of Hebrews puts it about, about Enoch in Hebrews in, in chapter 11 is like this. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Think of it. No death, just boom, off into glory. Now, before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so from that expression, we realize that this taking of Enoch and the taking of Elijah didn't mean that somehow they had earned this right, not to die, from God, that they were in some sense sinless, because it says he had pleased God, but you see, it's impossible to please God without faith. So they were men who believed, men of faith. They did not trust in themselves and their own goodness, but as Abraham had trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness, as, as we trust God, uh, then you see it's, it's counted for us as, 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 as grace, really, that we may be pleasing to God. It's through faith, you see. In fact, the apostle James writes of Elijah that he was a man with the same nature as, as, as ours, just like us. And so he too, Elijah, like Enoch, like us, must be saved by grace through, through faith. But take it. That's what this is about. Think of it. So we have to ask the question, why is this incident in the life of Elijah in the Bible? You may say, well, it rather nicely 
bring some closure to all of these Elijah narratives that we've been looking at for a number of months. And it does, you know, we like to know the end of a person when we start out, or the beginning of a person, and then this is kind of the end of it. Uh, It brings us to some closure, and so we don't expect to see Elijah around anymore, at least until we get to the New Testament, and he shows up with Moses, but that's another thing. But, 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 but it brings the closure. But, but it's really more than that. This isn't just sort of tidying up the story. Because we know that the Old Testament for us is history, as is the New. But it's selective. Not everything is included. In fact, some of what we might expect to be included in these accounts of kings, for instance, and prophets, isn't, isn't there. Because the author, the Holy Spirit, has an intention for us to get from their lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of how we're to, to understand this Old Testament. For instance, he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, this. He says, Now these things, and these things there, are that which happened in the Old Testament. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did uh, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So, So Paul says, listen, these were written for us to as in examples of how we're not to live, you see. Uh, Verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. He says, Christ has come, but still we have this as examples for us from the Old Testament. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, he says this. You might think you're different than they, but you're not. So be careful. It's easy to read of their idolatry and their sin and go, boy, I can't believe they did that. Once that sentence is thought, we're in great danger. He says, I've told you about these folks because you're just like them. Now don't follow their example. So he goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you. Uh, That is not common to man. He says, you're just as they. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it or stand up in it. And so that's why, as as example, negative example, don't live like this. We see that in this, these passages we've been reading out of First and Second Kings, the idolatry that took place. We've examined our own hearts and suggest that that same idolatrous spirit lives within us. And we must be careful to import to anything other than God that which is rightfully only God's. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, something else, another spin on this. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He says, well, here's another reason that you have all of these books before Matthew. Here's, here's another reason. So that you can read them and be encouraged, not just instructed in a negative way, but encouraged so that you can have hope. I think this passage I read about Elijah being caught up in this whirlwind and going off to heaven is just that. 
It's for our hope. There's a picture here we need to get in our heads. Uh, And I think if we do, it will bring us great hope. You know the situation, if you've been with us for a while, you know these characters of not uh, Elijah, prophet of God, called by God at a time in ancient Israel when the, when the country was following after idols. Ahab was the king, Jezebel his wife, and Jezebel from another country had brought in this god Baal uh, to be worshipped alongside God uh, in Israel. And the people did. And so Elijah the prophet came, pronounced first a curse on the land when he said it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three years. And then there was this great God contest between God of Israel and, and Baal. You might remember on Mount Carmel where sacrifices were, were set up, and, and, and the test was whichever God could, could, could consume those sacrifices by fire would be the true and living God. And of course, Baal couldn't because Baal isn't. And so, so the fire came from heaven at the prayer of Elijah. Elijah and God showed himself to be God. You remember after that, that Elijah became depressed because Ahab and Jezebel and many didn't repent, even though God had so clearly shown himself. And, and, and there was a, a contract then from Jezebel out on Elijah's life. So he ran. God took him back to Mount Sinai where this covenant had first been made. And it's as if he said to Elijah, this is my deal I'm the Lord of the covenant. I'll bring it to pass. Now you get back up on your feet and you get on with your life. I need work out of you yet. You've got a couple of kings to anoint and you need to anoint your successor, Elisha. And so he did. He went to Elisha and he found him. And Elisha, a relatively wealthy family, it appears. He had all these oxen. He was plowing his land even after that great famine of three years. And he was plowing his land. And Elijah threw his prophet mantle his cloak on Elisha. Elisha got it. He understood. And Elisha basically burned his inheritance. And he came uh, to be with Elijah, to be the next Elijah, if you will, this next one main prophet of God, of God in Israel. But you see, that had happened a long time before this incident in 2 Kings 2. Elijah was a prophet for decades in Israel. You know how it is when you, you think you know a person and you realize, wow, I've got five pages on the guy and he was around for 30 years. <laughs> There's a lot I don't know about him. Oh, I know the big stuff like the Mount Carmel thing and being fed by birds and all of that. I know that. But like, what did, what did he normally do? You know, what did he read? What was on his iPod? What, what really? I just don't know. But that was a cool reference, wasn't it? That was a cool reference. Um, I don't even know what it means. Uh, but I heard it somewhere. But... Um, um, We just don't know. He spent a lot of time with Elisha. In fact, when we see this particular incident, we get a little bit about what his time must have been spent with. He goes on this three-city tour from Gilgal, then to Bethel, then to Jericho, and and then to the Jordan River. So so that's kind of his his walk that day, a long walk, but but that was kind of what he was doing that day that the Lord took him up. Um, But we see, you see, that there was these, these ones called the Sons of the Prophets come around. It sounds like a bad country western group, doesn't it? Uh, the Sons of the Prophets. And, and he comes around, and, um, and who were they? Well, at each city, you see, in Bethel and in, 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 uh, in, in Jericho for sure, probably in Gilgal as well, there were seminaries essentially. There were schools where Elijah must have 
trained the prophets of the next generation. And they were called the sons of the prophets. It's not that their dads were prophets and they were going into the family business. It's just that that's, that's what they were known as, these students. And so you can see Elijah, even on this day where the Lord was going to take him up, the Lord led him back to each one of these places. It's as if he was going to speak to them one more time before he went. These were the ones he was mentoring. These were the ones he was training. Uh, and, and, and these are the ones who looked to Elijah and would ultimately look to Elisha for uh, their shepherding, for their teaching, for their training, and all of that. But, but it's interesting that, that, that as, as, as Elijah begins to, to move out, he says to Elisha, the Lord has called me to go. I'm in Gilgal. The Lord has called me to go to Bethel. I don't want you to come with me. Now, why didn't Elijah want Elisha to go with him? We, we don't know. <laughs> I like to do that to you. We don't know. It doesn't say. We don't know. Now, some have postulated that it was again you know Elijah's pride he thought it was all on his own shoulders he wanted to do it by himself even this last time we have no clue if that's true some said it's because of Elijah's humility that that he didn't know whether or not it was a good idea for Elijah to come or not so he kind of left it up to him we don't know if that's true we, we don't really know why other than it appears as if in this moment this intimate moment Elijah has his inkling to be alone but then Elisha says as long as you're alive I'm with you so I'm going to go and Elijah puts up no fuss with that, and so Elisha goes along. And then when they do get to Bethel is when they get to Jericho, same kind of thing. These, 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 these students at the prophet school come, and they say to Elisha, do you know that today's the day that they're going to take your master, that God is going to take your master from you? And Elisha says, yes, I know, but be quiet. Now, why is it? that Elisha didn't want them to talk about the fact that on that day, the Lord was going to take Elijah to be with him. We don't know. <laughs> All right? I'd like to get these curiosities out of the way quickly. We don't know. We just don't know why. Could be that Elisha's thinking, you know, he didn't even want me along, so trust me, he doesn't want you talking about this. He doesn't, you know, you're just kids. So for whatever reason, he says, just, just chill out. Let's not make a big deal of this. It's kind of Elijah's day. Let's let him walk through it. And so, so here they are. So he goes from Gilgal to Bethel, which means the house of the Lord, and then to Jericho, we know that city, and then to the Jordan River, same deal. Uh, Elisha, I don't want you to go with me. You stay here, Elisha says, I'm going to go with you. And we see uh, in the background, 50 students, verse 7, it says, 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they were standing by the Jordan, then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. You see the picture. Now that little expression, dry ground, if you were reading this, as one of the first readers or hearing this incident, incident as one of the first hearers, that expression, dry ground, would have bounced your mind back to a previous time at the Jordan River. And you would, if you knew your Old Testament scriptures, would run back to what we would call Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4, and you would find that what happened is that the way that the Israelites got from the wilderness, they were in Egypt, God put them through to Mount Sinai. 
They got the law. They went to Kadesh Barnea where God said, I want you to send out spies into the promised land, your inheritance. This is your land of glory, the land of milk and honey. And they did, and they came back with a report from the spies, 10 of them at least, saying this, there's no way we can go into that land and conquer them. Only Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. And, and, and the people wouldn't go. So God said, all right, this generation has got to wander in the wilderness until it's gone, and then the next generation can go in. And so that finally, as Moses died, Joshua becomes commander-in-chief, and he takes the people into this land of promise, into their inheritance. The only thing stopping them at that point in time is this huge river, the Jordan. They had no bridges, no engineers, no way to get across. And so God said to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that box that you're carrying around called the Ark of the Covenant. The box that has in it a very, very, very special thing. It has within it my promises. It has in it really the, my pledge, the very covenant of God, the Ten Commandments. That thing which begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. That thing has got it right there. That's my covenant promise to you to be your God and for you to be my people. I want you to take that box. And I want you to have the Levites who carry it, and I want them to go to the Jordan River, just the very uh, beginning there, just the, the shallow part. I want them to stick their feet in it. And I want the priests who represent the people to me, I want them to be there as well. And as soon as their feet hit that river, it will part, because you see, I, your covenant God, who's made the promise that this land is yours, I can part that river. And that's exactly what happened. There's no way that the people could have done it themselves, but God could do it because he was their God and they were his people. This was the promise he had made. He was fulfilling it. To get from this wilderness, they had to leave all of Egypt behind and then they were going to enter into this land of promise which was their inheritance. Now what we see here is that really Elijah and Elisha are doing all that in reverse on this day that the Lord was going to take him up. Keep that in your minds. Well, well then, at, at that moment, when they get to the other side, Elijah says to Elisha, what do you want me to do for you before I go? Now, that's sort of like the richest man in the world asking you what do you want, because this was Elijah, and he was known to do some very dramatic things. And so when he asked that question, you realize, wow, this could be pretty remarkable. Now, what Elisha asks it sounds at its sort of base a bit, a, bit, uh, a bit arrogant, but it isn't. Trust me, it's very humble what he asks. He says, I, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, the reason that sounds arrogant was you get the sense that he's saying, hey, Elijah, I want to be twice as great as you. You know, you were good, but I want to be twice. You did seven miracles, I want to do 14. You know, whatever, I, I, just, I, I, I want to be twice as good. But, but really, that's not what he's asking. That little expression, I want a double portion is a technical inheritance word. You see, the firstborn son always got a double portion of his father's inheritance. And the reason that he got a double portion was because the firstborn son was put in a position to now be the father, to oversee the rest of the family. So he needed his portion, that was only fair. But he also needed a bit more because he knew everybody else was going to get into a bit of trouble. And he needed more if he was going to manage this clan. 
And so when Elisha comes to Elijah and says, give me a double portion of your spirit, what he's asking is this. He's saying, if I'm going to take your place, I need to have what you have. And I need to have what you have and enough so that I can continue to carry. If you don't give me that, Elijah, I can't do this. I can't be this prophet of God. And so humbly I'm saying to you, give me a double portion. Make me like your firstborn. Because if I'm to be the father to these other prophets, then I need a double portion. I need the portion that goes to the firstborn. And Elijah says, wow, that's substantial. That's really hard. I don't know that I can grant that, but God can. So here's the deal. If you see the Lord take me away, that's his word to you that you'll receive this double portion and you'll be the father of the prophets. But, but, but if you don't, then, then it, all bets are off. And so, of course, he does. And what he sees is what I want in our heads. What he sees is the very power of God coming to make certain that Elijah gets his inheritance, that he crosses his own Jordan. And so what happens is that these fiery chariots come and these fiery horses fire the very presence of God, chariots, horses, the very power of God. And these chariots and horses come and here is Elijah and here is Elisha and they come right in between as if nothing can keep him from going. Nothing can stop him. You can try to penetrate, but this is the power of God. This is the Lord of hosts. You'll never be able to make it. I've got him now. The whirlwind happens. Boop, he's gone. When Elisha sees that, he begins to cry, my father, my father, the chariots and horses. And by that he's saying, Elijah's gone, so the very power of God must be gone. What are we going to do now? Well, Elijah doesn't need his coat anymore, so his cloak's there. It's like, boom, he's gone, he leaves. And, and so Elisha takes it. Now, Elisha has one immediate problem. You know what that is? He's on the wrong side of the Jordan. <laughs> and so it's like, hello, over there, you know. Now, these 50 prophets, you know, they're looking on going, wow, he's got a problem. We're glad we're just in school. Uh, and so, so, so here's Elisha. He's got the cloak, wraps it up, hits the water. What happens? Boom, it goes. The prophet's sons of looks at that and go, ooh. He got it. He's the new Elijah. He's the father of the prophets, yes. And so now Elijah comes back. Elisha comes back. Just comically, at least to me, the end of this passage, and then we'll apply. Now, the, 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 these, these schoolboy prophets come to Elisha and say, we need to go look for Elijah. We saw him get caught up in the whirlwind. Maybe he got dropped off at the top of the mountain. Uh, you know, and, and Elijah's going, no, don't send anybody to go look for him. Trust me, you won't find him. And they go, oh, come on, they're just kids. So, you know, they're zealous. They, you know, they've got to turn paper due. So, so here they go. They're going to they, they, go find Elijah. And, 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 and they go for three days, which I'm sure is significant. And then they come back to Elisha. Elisha said, I, I told you so. That's why I'm the father of the prophets and you're still in school kind of thing. So what do we make of this? Two things really. Many things probably, but these two. First this. What this shows us 
is the continuity of the presence and the power of God from one generation to the other. You see, after Elijah was taken, here's Elisha. You gotta think about this. Elisha had spent probably, could be a couple of decades with Elijah, serving him. In fact, later on in 2 Samuel, we'll read a little expression about Elisha as the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I mean, he served him even as his valet. He cleaned his hands before they ate. And so, so the, the intimacy, the closeness of the two of them. And if you've had a person like that in your life, father, mother, friend, mentor, even someone you've, like me, who's, my mentors, most of them are dead uh, hundreds of years, and yet there's an affection, there's a warmth there. If they're ever taken away, you, you wonder, oh, no, what, what, what can happen now? In fact, when, when, Elisha, when Elisha got the, the cloak of Elijah, uh, he, he, he struck the water. His, his, his question was, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where is he? Is he here? Did he go off with Elijah? Do we have the presence? Do we have the power of God even now? And the answer was, yes, we do. Because you see, the presence and the power of God is never wrapped up in one person, in a generation. It goes from generation to generation to generation. So on the one hand, as we lose those mentors, as we lose those dear ones, and we have lost, I mean, the evangelical community has lost John Stott recently, Chuck Colson, um, Billy Graham's an old man. Uh, we'll lose them, you see. Many of us have lost in our lives, those who were dear to us, those we looked to as fathers and mothers. They may have been our fathers and mothers. Biologically, they may have been that spiritually. We look to them and we lose them and we wonder, how will my life be now? And on the one hand, we grieve them appropriately and we honor them appropriately. On the other hand, we don't worry that God has left us because he hasn't, because his presence and power is in his word and in his son by his spirit to us and that never leaves. So though Elijah is gone, Elisha is there. And after Elisha, there'll be another. And after that one will be another. And the spirit and the power of God lives in the context of the life of his people. Uh, Ralph Davis, who was a professor at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and a friend in uh, in fact, Ralph was here a number of years ago, many years ago now, leading us on a weekend through an Old Testament uh, seminar kind of survey kind of thing. Tells this story about a, uh, an early uh, 17th uh, or 18th century Scottish minister by the name of Ebenezer Erskine. And I remember the story just because I love that name. Uh, his poor brother John Erskine, that's nothing but Ebenezer. Wouldn't you love the Ebenezer Erskine? A uh, good preacher in Scotland, and, and one Sunday, a woman came to his church, and uh, she was greatly moved by the sermon. Uh, and in those days, as she would say, her affections were stirred for God. So much so that she decided to return the next Sunday. The next Sunday, she came to worship, and nothing happened. I mean, she was just like, this is not that good. And so after, because she was a Scottish woman, she went up to him and said, what happened this week? Uh, 
Last week was everything to me. This week is nothing. And he said, well, ma'am, last week you came to hear Jesus Christ. This week you came to hear Ebenezer Erskine. You see, we can do that, can't we? We can get hung up in a person. And that's not it, you see. It's in Jesus and him alone. And so we needn't ever worry. No, we can grieve those we lose, but we needn't worry. The power, the presence of God is still among us. One generation to the other. But here's another thing. And that is this hope that we have that God really does have power over death, really. Because in this instant, he, he, he skips it all together. You see, we, we see this process of, of Elijah going directly into glory. Uh, this was about the best thing they had before the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection of Jesus trumps everything, of course, but we see that. But, but here's a picture of it. We, we, we get it explicitly. We see this, the great uh, uh, chariots of fire and horses come and, and the very power of God saying, nothing can keep. I, I, I've got this one Elijah, he's mine, I'm taking him to myself. I will do that. Nothing can really stop that. And we, we see that picture and that's what's to be in our mind, you see, as we lose those we love, as we face death ourselves. As believers, you see, God is that intense on bringing us to be with him. And nothing can stop him. Nothing could stop him from getting Elijah on that day. And he sent his chariots and his horses to make sure that we got to see it. Don't usually get to see it. <laughs> but we got to see it. That's really true. I confess to you that when I'm with folks who are passing away, Right after. That's the picture that's in my mind. But you see, the only hope that we have really, the only thing that parts the Jordan for us, gets us from the wilderness into the land of promise, uh, gets us into this inheritance that ours. The only one who can really part that is our Lord Jesus, really. You know, it's funny, throughout uh, history, poets have loved this image of the River Jordan, of that to which we have to cross to get to the other side, to get to our inheritance. And that's the very point of it, isn't it? We're going to sing a song at the end of the service, if I'm ever finished, that... Uh, that's, that, that we sing from time to time, on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. You see, it's all about that. I stand, I cast a wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. It's this passage that inspired all of that. Or swing low, sweet chariot. What are the sweet chariots we want to swing low? It isn't about a necklace. <laughs> what about a mobile? It's about chariots coming very close to us. Why? They're coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? You see, that's, that's all of this. That's this image of Jordan. When John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a book written in the 17th century that's never been out of print. If you haven't read it, you, you haven't read it, you must. It's an allegory, you know it, of Pilgrim. He gets, he's conscious of his own sin 
And it's a great burden to him. He sees the cross. He lays his burden at the cross. From then he begins his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And all is going in various kinds of ways. We relate to, to his story, his ups and downs and so forth. And he gets and he, he has the celestial city in his sights. But between him and the city is this river. And he must cross it. Fortunately, he's with his friend whose name is Hopeful. And, and so Hopeful continues to remind him of the texts as he puts it of the fact that, that, that Christ is with him and Jesus has saved him. And in fact, one of the texts that he reminds him of is this one in Isaiah chapter 43. He says, he says remember this, when you're going through the river and it seems like there's no good footing and it seems like you're, you're going to drown, he says, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. I love that little expression, don't you? I'm sure you know that when I pray for every child who's baptized, I say their name and I say to the Father, you know their name. Some of you can't remember my name, I'm sure. I know people who can't remember who I am and I can't remember who they are. God never forgets. Is that amazing? I've called you by name, your mind, when you pass through the waters. That is this waters of judgment, really. When you pass through these waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You see, that's the text, the hope. And Pilgrim said, with that text, yes, the ground in the river as I'm walking through becomes firm. I don't feel the waves knocking me over any longer and I see Jesus. And he gets through to the other side. Hope. It's Jesus who does this. The apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. When he's speaking of the stinger, he's thinking of a stinger that kills, not just a stinger that burns but a stinger that kills. And he said, what kills is our sin. And what gives our sin power to kill is the law. It condemns us. Now, what Jesus has done is he's taken the stinger for us. When I was a kid, I did the stupidest thing imaginable. Kids, don't do this. But we would kill bees with our hands. We'd slap them. I remember Patty. We'd slap them like this, which is great until you find that in your palm is a little hollow. And if you just so happen to catch the bee in the hollow of your palms, it doesn't die. It stings, wherein you lose the hollow in your hand because it swells, right? But it was always good to know that once that bee had stung my friend, he couldn't get me because his stinger was gone. You see, that's what Jesus has done. 
He's taken out the stinger. He took this. He took it. He took it. So now we don't. J.I. Packer, who's a scholar of the Puritan theologians, says that the Puritans had a very peculiar custom when a person was dying. What they would do is gather around the bed and you say, well, that's good. We should be with those. We love who are passing and that's a good thing to do. But he said they would, they would, they would creep uncomfortably close to the lips of the person who was dying. And the reason they would do that was so that they would catch the last words of the person who was dying. And their hope was that they would hear from the lips of this dying one something of what is to come so that they would have hope. The great thing about this passage is that we don't have to be that rude anymore. We can read about Elijah and we can say, oh, yes, I know what's to come, that God will come, and his chariots and fire, if that's literal or figurative, it doesn't matter. The point is the same. He's going to come and protect my going through till I reach my inheritance. And nothing, nothing can stop it. Because, you see, it's our Lord Jesus who's our covenant brother. And just as the Ark of the Covenant went into that Jordan River in the days of Joshua and it parted, just like when those priests put their feet in that River Jordan and it parted, our great covenant bearer, Jesus, our high priest, steps in that Jordan of our own and he parts it and we find ourselves right in the presence of God. But if he not do that for us, we'll be drowned. So you think it's, you see, it's good from time to time for us to take that spiritual sort of survey of our own hearts and lives and ask ourselves that question. However old-fashioned, however tent revivalish it might sound, to ask that question, if I died today, would it part from me? Because you see, it only parts because of Jesus. And it only parts for those who believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would know that we do indeed believe. Give us grace that we may believe and persevere in our faith. Give us grace to know for those who don't know. I pray for deep honesty within us and that you would come with your spirit by way of your word, bring the truth to us deeply and enable us to embrace all that is true of Christ. Father, we know in our congregation especially, many of us 
in the last number of months have lost those dear to us. It's, it's astounding. Moms and dads, friends. Michelle Barnes at her mom's funeral today. My dear brother Wilbur passing this past week. And so, Father, we give you thanks for them and and we pray that we would know that your presence and power is still with us. And we give you thanks for their lives. Pray for those who grieve, for these and for others. So we pray for those who are suffering uh, physical illness. We pray for our dear brother Jerry Bridges as he's still overcoming complications from his heart surgery. And God, I pray as one of our dear Elijah's that you would spare his life for our sake. Be with him. Heal him. For those, Father, that are struggling with um, financial situations, health situations, relationship situations, and God, you would be strong in their lives to let them know that you are the God who is the God of life and death and triumphs over all that is evil. And you are with them. And they need not be dismayed. Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would grant to us grace that we may continue to walk in your ways and that you would correct us in every way that we are not and bring to us every way that we must and grant your presence, your power, and your word that we would be faithful to you. And in this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you, there'll be elders uh, in front of the sanctuary afterwards to pray with you, so if you have a particular need, uh, please come and allow them uh, to pray for you. Please now receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Mm -hmm.